Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. Eric Riven is here. Whether you are on a walk or in the gym or using my voice to fall asleep, I'm so glad you're here. And I am so pleased to have Janice S.C. Petrie as my guest today. She is a certified teacher with a Master of Education. She also has an enormous love of the sea which led to her becoming a certified scuba diver and working as an outreach specialist for the New England Aquarium. She is an author as well and has written children's books, historical fiction, and a nonfiction book, which she is here to talk about. It is called Perfection to a Fault, A Small Murder in Ossipee, New Hampshire, 1916. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. So what was your inspiration for writing this book? Well, I have a personal connection to every book that I've written, but this particular book, I have a very unique connection. Uh, growing up, when my father's whole side of the family gathered for summer at, at dusk, uh, my father would tell a story about a haunted cottage on the shores of Lake Ossipee. It's where my parents and my brother and I stayed for one night. We were supposed to stay for a week, but we only stayed for one night. As soon as the sun came up enough so that my father could get the boat on the trailer and get it out of the lake, we left. I was just a baby, so I don't remember anything about it, and neither does my brother. Uh, he was just a toddler at the time. My grandparents actually owned the cottage and were helping my father out by letting him stay there for vacation, even though he'd have preferred to rent his usual cottage at Deer Cove because he liked that area better. Well, my father had to explain to my grandparents why he suddenly left their cottage, so he said, well, you know, we have a baby. Back then, they didn't have disposable diapers, so there was no washer and dryer in the cottage, and so it was just too hard to have a baby under those circumstances. So it was just going to be easier if they took day trips from home. And, and that's what they intended to do. And so my grandparents bought that. And so my father really didn't have to tell the real reason why they left the cottage so quickly. 
And about three years later, my father picked up the Boston Globe magazine after church, and he began to read an article about a horrific murder that happened in a cottage on the shores of Lake Ossipee. Well, he called my grandfather up immediately and uh, asked him, could that have been his cottage? And it turned out that my grandparents knew all along that it was the cottage where the murder took place, but they didn't want to tell anybody because they didn't want the family to feel uncomfortable about the old place. So basically, I wanted to find out if there was anything that really happened in my grandparents' cottage that could have caused my parents to react the way that they did. And amazingly, the story that I uncovered was so much stranger than anything that my father could have come up with in his little story that he told year after year, you know, in the summertime. And that's how it all came to be. So the story has been with you uh, for decades now. Right, in 1995. It's my first book, actually. So Florence Curry is the murder victim in this story. Tell us about her her life with her mother, Elizabeth, and her sister, Norma, uh, their lives together, and her background. Right. Um, Florence Curry was born in Hortonville, Nova Scotia. She was about 30 years old, or a little bit older, when she actually met Frederick Small. Nowadays, you wouldn't consider that to be old at all, but back in the early 1900s, if you weren't married, you know, way before you were 30, then you were considered an old maid. And this, and Norma also was not married at the time either. Um, it seemed that they basically grew up and worked on the family's farm in Southborough, Massachusetts. And there weren't a lot of opportunities for them to meet eligible bachelors. And uh, it wasn't like there was anything wrong with them. They just were isolated to a certain degree, you know, with what their work was and where they lived. Um, but Eventually, what happened was the father, who was actually a sailor, he went to sea to earn a living, and he became ill, really ill, to the point where he had to be sent to a home. And that left Elizabeth Curry, Florence and Norma's mother, with a dilemma. How do you make a living when your husband is no longer available to do that? And so what she did, she's very ingenious, she turned her farm into a convalescent home, and that was the first opportunity for Florence and Norma to actually meet eligible bachelors, basically. Uh, either they met people who were family members of the people who were staying at the convalescent home, or they, they were workers who came into the convalescent home to do odd jobs and things. And that's what Frederick Small was. He was a handyman who came into their home to fix things. As I was reading your book, I got the feeling that these three women were extremely close, uh, a, a tight-knit trio, and they were kind, right? I mean, I guess you'd have to be kind to dedicate your life to running a convalescent home. Right, and, and they were very tight-knit. Um, they Basically, their entire lives, they worked and lived together. Um, I think the father was out to sea more than he was home, so they got very used to depending on each other for sure. And of course, not only were they kind to be working um, and doing the work of a convalescent home, but um, they had to have been somewhat business savvy too, I would think, you know, in order to make a go of it, you know, the three women. Right, right. So Florence was kind of naive in the ways of love. Yeah. She lived in an area without a lot of, of single men, and then she meets Frederick Small. 
who had lived a, a pretty busy life already, including two serious relationships. Can you tell us about his past? Sure, because it, it is very different from Florence's background. Um, Frederick grew up in Portland, Maine. Um, he was a very skilled baseball player and always considered that his destiny was going to be playing pro ball. But unfortunately, he ran into some other player when he was sliding into first base and broke his leg in several places. And uh, nowadays, maybe that wouldn't have been a big deal. But back then, with medical ability the way it was, they tried their best to uh, set the leg well, but he still, it was a little bit short. It was a lot short. He walked with a limp. So not only was he now disabled, but it also made his dream of being a professional ball player go up in smoke, pretty much. So in 1890, he uh, was 21, and he got a small, uh, he got a job at a grocery store uh, where he met his first wife, whose name was Nettie Davis. And they were really happy. And uh, about a year later, they were having a baby. And unfortunately, both his wife and his baby died in childbirth. Well, you can imagine, Small was just devastated. So he moved around here and there, tried a bunch of different jobs until he wound up in Boston working as a stockbroker. That's where he met his second wife, Laura Patterson. She was from Salem, Massachusetts. They were married in 1899 and eventually wound up living in Somerville. The neighbors thought they seemed to be pretty much in love and spoke of Laura as being quiet and a bit shy. Everything was going well until Frederick accused Laura of having an affair with a man named Soden, who was part of the owner of the Boston National League Baseball Club. And in 1908, Frederick was awarded $10,000 after suing Soden, even though the auditor thought that Small encouraged Laura to have an affair so he could bring suit against Soden. Well, Small divorced Laura, his second wife, and a year later, he sold his home and moved to the Curry Farm. Yeah, it's it's an interesting story. The judge uh, basically saw through him, and he'd gotten money, but not the amount that he had asked for. And the judge kind of admonished him, uh, called him lazy and indifferent towards his wife and her affair. But Frederick Small didn't care. He, he just wanted the cash. Exactly. It, it seemed that Frederick was a bit of a schemer. So... Frederick meets Florence. Uh, was it love at first sight? Was it a blissful courtship? It was a quick courtship. I think it was six or eight weeks. It wasn't very long. And his mother, really, her mother, Florence's mother, really didn't like Frederick much. She found him to be boastful and kind of egotistical. I guess that kind of would have gone along with somebody who was planning to be a pro baseball player. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the rug just got pulled out from under him. So those traits still were underlying. And um, she just didn't like him. She didn't trust him. Uh, but Florence really wanted to be married. And here was the opportunity to be married. And so they got married despite what especially Elizabeth Curry felt about the relationship. And Frederick was initially very helpful. Uh, he was handy, uh, a tinkerer, uh, a wannabe inventor, and good with electricity. 
Yeah, so electricity and pretty much anything. He liked to run telephone wires and um, things like that. He could pretty much fix anything. He was really proud of how many knots he knew how to tie and, and in a very particular way. He was a very particular man, which is why I named the book the way I named it. Um, he was a perfectionist, basically. Right. So at some point in the early days of their marriage, a Dr. Bacon is called to the home. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to us why he was called and what he found when he arrived? Sure. This was when they were still in Southborough, um, living on the farm, on the convalescent home. And um, I guess, according to what I read, um, Frederick hit Florence over the head with a boot jack. And um, it caused so much of an injury that they did have to call the doctor to take care of it. And when the doctor arrived, Frederick was very angry that they had called the doctor and he started to attack the doctor. And I guess the doctor, Frederick was just no match for him. Uh, He was much taller than him and he basically just kind of shoved him away. And Frederick went flying across the kitchen and slid, one of his legs slid under the stove. And that pretty much was where Frederick wound up. And then Dr. Bacon took care of the wound. But obviously, that was a very unsettling incident for Elizabeth Curry and Norma Curry to, you know, see here Florence is, she's a newlywed, and this happened. And it wasn't long after this incident that he decided to take Florence and move somewhere else, correct? Correct, yes. He decided to take her up to Lake Ossipee. He bought a really nice cottage there that had a really fantastic view of the mountains. And um, he bought the cottage for $900 and he decided he was going to semi-retire, maybe sell some stocks or insurance on the side. But that was kind of where he intended to you know, spend his retirement. But coincidentally, <laughs> around the time they were preparing to leave, a mysterious fire took place at the Curry home. It did. Um, And, you know, it wouldn't have been suspicious at all, except for the fact that after Florence and Frederick were married, Frederick had a surveyor come out and survey the uh, farm convalescent um, home that the Curry family owned and figure out what exactly was Florence's share. And once he ascertained what the share was, he insured it for $10,000. And then Florence and Frederick went up to Lake Ossipee, and it wasn't too much longer after that, like days, when all of a sudden the curry farm caught on fire, burned to the ground, and Frederick got a $10,000 insurance settlement. And unfortunately, uh, Norma and Elizabeth were not insured to the degree that uh, Frederick was, and they basically walked away with nothing because they weren't insured really well, as they should have been. And um, everything pretty much got lost in the fire. So they had to start over again in Southborough. And you would have thought that Frederick would have been more generous as far as, well, he got $10,000. Maybe he could share some with the Curry since it was their farm. But no, he didn't do that. Uh, I know you're thinking, did he set the fire? (laughs) (laughs) You know, 
I don't know. There was no, it wasn't suspicious. Nobody thought it was suspicious. So no investigators went in there and said, oh, well, you know, Frederick set the fire. And so, and they did know that he got an insurance policy and he got a payout on it. So, um, but nobody, nobody was suspect of it. It just was an accident that happened. And Frederick just managed to make some money on it. So Florence and Frederick move into this idyllic home. They're now financially secure. It would be a great start for any couple under normal circumstances. You would think so. But Florence, you know, when she lived in the cottage, as you can imagine, Lake Ossipee, when people were at their cottages, it was great. It was bustling and everything. But when, you know, the fall came, most of the people were from out of state and they went back to their homes. So those cottages stayed vacant for probably nine months of the year. And so it was extremely lonely for Florence up there. And, uh, you know, they would occasionally play cards with a couple who, you know, lived in the cottages around the lake. And um, Frederick would go and run some electrical wires or telephone lines for people and fix things for people. So he was fairly social. But Florence was really isolated. And so um, there was a lot of talk about people hearing Frederick yelling at Florence because, you know, they're living on a lake and sound does, of course, travel, carry, you know, over that kind of an environment. But there was a lot of talk about, you know, Frederick yelling at her a lot and things, you know, verbal abuse. So it certainly wasn't a marriage made in heaven, for sure. No, definitely not. So would you tell us about Frederick Small's trip on September 28th, 1916, who he met and where he went? Sure. Okay, so on September 28th, 1916, at 11 o'clock, Charles Skeggle delivered groceries to Florence and Frederick. And um, they talked about a line storm that happened, and that's like a, a really... A big rain wind storm that had happened the day before. And uh, then early in the afternoon, Frederick called Edwin Connor, uh, who was the Alba High School principal, and asked him if he'd like to take the 407 train into Boston to sell some insurance with him. And Ed didn't want to leave midweek. He's a principal of a school. It was hard to get away, but Small insisted it was the only time he could go. So um, Ed needed a little extra income and he couldn't pass it up. The money meant too much to him. I guess principals in that day really didn't make a lot of money. So he reluctantly agreed to go. Well, then Small called uh, George Kennett, and he's a day clerk at the Central House, and he had a taxi service, and he set up a ride with Kennett's horse and buggy to take him to the Osprey train station around 315 so when George drove up um, to Frederick's driveway, uh, he noticed that Small was standing by the side door of his house with a suitcase in hand. And George was hoping for a little snifter of liquor, which they usually did when uh, any time he took Small to the train station, they'd have a little nip before they left. Um, well, there was going to be no nip that day. Frederick called goodbye, dear, to Florence, closed the door, and made his way to Kenneth's buggy. And uh, they arrived at the train station a little before four o'clock. Fred met Ed. They boarded the train for Boston. 
Small and Connor made their way to Young's Hotel, where they were staying for the night. They checked in. Fred ordered a bottle of rye to be delivered to the room, and then they went out to the Parker House, where they ate a full dinner and discussed business plans. After dinner, they both bought postcards to send to their wives. I find that hilarious because I know they didn't have a face, you know, Facebook and and you know Twitter and all those things back then. But you know, to to buy postcards for wives when you're literally are going to be, you know, gone for uh, overnight, it, it seemed kind of crazy to me. <laughs> Even further crazy was what Small wrote on his postcard. He wrote, Fair Weather at Young's, Fred, September 28th, 1916, 8.40 p.m. And then he showed it to Ed and said, Mrs. Small and I are exact on all things. And, you know, maybe that's what he always wrote on a postcard to his wife, but it sure looked like he was setting up an alibi. At least that's how it looked to investigators, too. So then after that, they went to the theater, the Majestic Theater, they uh watched a movie that was called Where Are My Children? Following that, they went to Clark's Grill on Washington Street, and they ate a large portion of scallops and beer. And they got in quite late that night, and that pretty much sums up what he did that day. Right. So they stumble in, tipsy from their guy's night out, I guess. (laughs) And someone comes up to them and says, which one of you is, is Frederick Small? I have an important message. That's right. The uh, night clerk at Young's Hotel came up to Frederick Small and said he had a message from Frank Farron, who was a night clerk at the Central House in Ossipee, that he was to call immediately when he got in. And that's what he did. And that's when he found out that his home had basically burned to the ground. And we will be right back. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony. And Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with Factors scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. 
There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week, pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal, dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com slash notorious50 and use code notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code notorious50 at factormeals.com slash notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. So I know if it was me, and I had just learned that my house was on fire, my wife was in potential danger, I'd try to get there as quickly as I possibly could. What did Frederick do in response to that news? Right. So, well, he was a mess. He was crying. He was drinking his bottle of rye, yelling, oh, my poor pet, my poor, poor pet. I mean, he was just a mess. And uh, so Ed thought, well, we're not going to wait for the train, you know, in the morning. And they hired a car to go back up to Ossipee and pretty much small cried the entire way home. It was not, not a fun ride for sure. And when he got to uh, Ossipee, um, Ed was talking to Frank just to find out what had happened. And um, Fred ordered a full breakfast for both of them. Um, he didn't want to see the cottage on an empty stomach. Right. So as everyone else in town is heading to the cottage, he and Ed are enjoying their breakfast. Well, I think it was more Fred than Ed. <laughs> that was Right. Ed was certainly concerned. Yeah. Exactly. Ed thought it was a little, a little strange, but then, you know, who knows how people are going to react to a, something like that happening. So eventually they make their way to the cottage. What do they find? Well, at first, invested, well, when they walked up to the cottage, Sheriff Chandler immediately told Small, because Small was beginning to start to, you know, head to the ruins of the cottage, and he was stopped by um, Sheriff Chandler immediately. 
and told that it was too dangerous for him to go in, that he'd be better off getting away and, and going someplace else. Uh, Sheriff Chandler did not want him sifting through the ruins at all, even though pretty much everybody else in town, anyone who showed up to see the ruins was welcomed into um, the cottage and uh, they valued their help as far as finding things, but they, he definitely kept Frederick out. Uh, Frederick wouldn't be quieted though, right? Right. He, he made an announcement out loud that there was $6,000 worth of jewelry somewhere in the smoldering ruins and anyone who found it could keep it, which was interesting, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they did find some jewelry, but it was very modest and never found. I mean, if you consider $6,000 nowadays, doesn't sound like a lot, but back then it really was quite a bit of, of money. And uh, they never found anything even close to that um, amount of jewelry in the ruins. So members of the fire department were present, and it was immediately noted that the fire was different than the fires that they were used to combating. The fire was burning a lot hotter than they were accustomed to, and it was burning evenly across the cottage. Yeah, that, that's correct. Um, it was a hotter, it almost seemed like when the fire first started, it was almost like an explosion. And the cottage burned very evenly, and it was much, much hotter than they would have expected a regular wood fire. A fire that was burning wood would give off. It seemed to be more. One of the things we didn't mention earlier, and maybe now is a good time to do it, one of the things that Frederick had been frustrated by was that there was very often water in the basement of the house. That's correct. Um, Mark Winkley. I actually spoke to Mark Winkley's grandson when I wrote the book. Uh, and it was amazing because he was even very, very angry after all those years that Frederick Small had the gall to accuse Mark Winkley of not doing a good job on the foundation of his cottage. Um, I, I guess that Frederick, it, the cod, it, it leaked. It leaked even when my grandparents had that cottage. The, you know, in the springtime when the the rivers that were close by there and the lake, all the water table just kind of rose a little bit after the snow melt, and that cottage would fill with um, water. There's no getting around it. Uh, a couple feet of water, and, and they just got used to it. Gave the cottage kind of a musty sort of smell, which wasn't fabulous. But um, Frederick wanted to fix it, and he had Mark Winkley come over and take a peek at it. And um, he was not willing to pay the amount of money that Mark Winkley said it was going to cost to actually rid himself of this leaky foundation. So um, Frederick Small declined, but he always complained that Mark Winkley was the, the whole cause of all of his problems, which that was just incredible. So his police and neighbors all pitched in to help search through what remained of the house. What did they find? Okay, well, of course, the first thing that they found was Florence. Um, for a long time, people were hoping that Florence had gone to visit a friend overnight or something like that, that she had been out of town 
because obviously she didn't show up for the fire, so she wasn't that close, but they were hoping that she had gone away since, you know, Frederick was away. Well, that wasn't the case. Um, when the investigators first got there, they were disheartened because the contents of the cottage appeared to have totally been destroyed in the fire. But then they noticed that there was about two feet of water, because remember, there was a line storm the day before. And so that would have been enough for that cottage to have filled with water and collecting in the cellar. And when they looked at the cellar, they saw some of the cottage contents jutting out from the surface of the water. So the searchers waded through the murky, tepid water and looking for clues and jewelry and anything else they could find. And Ed Connor got to a, a corner of the cellar and he rotated a mattress. And when he did, Florence Small's body bobbed up. Well, her arms and legs had been burned off in the fire, along with a good part of the front of her torso. But her internal organs, her head and her back remained practically untouched by the fire. So Florence's head had a cloth covering it, and there was a rope holding it around her neck. Um, Dr. Hodgson, uh, who happened to be on scene, uh, looked at her very quickly, uh, and he noticed that she had been shot in the head. She had been hit on the skull several times with fire po fireplace poker and uh, was strangled with a cord. And he felt that the strangulation was what actually caused her death. Uh, her body also was rubbed in resin, which is insoluble in water, and that would cause the body to burn long after the fire had been doused. So was Fred still at the cottage when his wife's body was recovered? No, he had left uh, and gone back to the central house, and he was sitting by the fire there crying about his wife and saying she must have gotten too close to the fireplace, you know, doing her needlework and... Um, and a spark might have caught her clothes on fire, and, and maybe that's what happened. What was his reaction when he heard the news that his wife had been found? He was surprised that there was, well, basically what they said was, would you like to buy a coffin, you know, for her? Obviously, she was not alive anymore, and they needed to do something with the body. And he was surprised that there was anything left of her because he did see, you know, to give him his dues, he did see the cottage and the ruins and everything. And um, he couldn't imagine that if she was in that fire, that there could be anything left of her for a coffin. And he was surprised that, yes, there, there was enough of her body left so that they would require a coffin. So he bought a half coffin for her. So what else did they discover as, as they looked through the house? What, what evidence did they find? Well, the first thing, um, which wasn't the first thing, actually, that they found, we actually found out that this was found at the inquiry on October 2nd, was that Fred Bean found the revolver in the basement that supposedly was the gun that killed, or at least contributed to the death of Florence Small. Um, it was interesting that that wasn't found more immediately than that. Of course, the postcard did come back to Florence, and the uh, the sheriff took that postcard, and with what it said, he assumed it looked like Fred was setting up an alibi. Um, Small took a satchel with him uh, to Boston, 
And it contained a lot of keepsakes that made the authorities think he might not have wanted to lose them in a fire, which proved to them that Small knew the fire was going to happen. Um, the items included letters from his second wife, a Masonic apron, the deed to his cottage, an inventory of his home, which included, which was interesting, pieces of candy in a candy dish and cigars, the number of cigars that were in the cigar box. Um, <laughs> Which, why would you put something so temporary, you know, that could change from day to day on an inventory? Again, he was a perfectionist, but it was strange. One thing that wasn't listed was the revolver that they eventually found. And, um, of course, the sheriff took that to mean that Frederick knew it was going to be used in the commission of a crime, and he didn't want to call it attention to it. But maybe Frederick didn't own it. And uh, being as precise as he was with the candy and cigars, even if he was going to use that gun in a uh, the commission of a crime, it's kind of not his character to not list it anyway, you know, just so that he was sure he got everything that was coming to him. So it was, it was kind of suspicious. You know, they thought it was suspicious that he left it off, but maybe he didn't own it. And that's why he left it off the inventory. It's kind of, you kind of have to look at his character and, and have a little insight into why or if he would leave that revolver off um, because he seemed to want every last nickel of everything that he had coming to him. And it would be strange, even if it did kind of point to a murder, that he would leave it off, in my opinion. Right, right. So his inventory was incredibly detailed, minus the gun. But he also, right, uh, didn't list each individual piece of his wife's jewelry. Right, right. And, you know, I don't think the jewelry, she had a wedding ring, obviously, and a, which they did find. They did find a few pieces of jewelry. But yes, if, if all that jewelry was there, you would definitely would think that that would have been on the inventory, too. And it wasn't. So it's almost like he thought of that at the spur of the moment, you know? Yeah. And, and wasn't he also overheard uh, by some people cursing out the, the stonemason? <laughs> not, not just once. I mean, that was a, a theme. <laughs> that was his theme song, you know, that all of his problems were Mark Winkley's fault. If things had gone the way, if he did do this murder, um, if things had gone the way it was planned, everything would have burned up in that fire for sure, the way it was described that it was burning so hot and, and everything. If that water hadn't been in the cellar, if that line storm hadn't happened the day before, probably everything would have gotten destroyed in the fire and he wouldn't be a suspect. So listeners are probably wondering, he, he said goodbye to his wife. He left home. Uh, how could he have killed her? How could he have started the fire if he wasn't actually at the house? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know, the investigators uh, had to find some way, since Small definitely had an airtight alibi in Boston with the high school principal, they had to prove some way that he could have started that fire and not been in the home at the time. So. The investigators hired a, uh, an electrician. His name was Frank Piper. And basically what they did, they never found an incendiary device all connected together in the cellar that could have caused this fire. 
So they were kind of going on a theory rather than evidence. And so they collected spark plugs and a hairbrush made of German silver wire and a clock and phone wire that was supporting the stovepipe and a battery, just a whole bunch of things that they found in the cellar. And they gave them the Frank Piper and said, build us an incendiary device, something that will work for sure. So the spark plugs, they immediately discarded because they didn't, they weren't functioning. So basically what he did was he took the battery, a clock, a glass filled with kerosene and a wick and some German silver wire and uh, basically built a device that was successful. And the way that they did that was he took from the battery, he attached a wire and then he carried that wire to the alarm clock and wrapped a wire around the alarm hand. And then Piper attached another wire to the hour hand. And he carried that wire to a piece of German silver wire that has a higher resistance when current runs through it. And then he attached another wire from the other end of the German silver wire back to the battery. So what happened was when the hour hand came around and connected to the alarm hand, the circuit would be completed. And the German silver wire was so necessary because it would become red hot, just like a toaster wire, when current goes through it. And that would easily catch a, a kerosene-soaked wick on fire. And that's how he managed to set a fire using an incendiary device. Did Frederick Small do that? Who knows? There's no evidence of it. But it was the only way that the sheriff could charge Frederick Small with the murder because he had an airtight alibi in Boston. Yeah, that's so interesting. <laughs> so Florence's stomach, the contents of her stomach, that would play an important role in determining the time of death, right? It did, actually. Um, the fact that it was full of meat, potato, and vegetables led um, investigators to believe that she had eaten her big meal right before she died because it wasn't even totally digested. So that was really good for the defense because they said, see, Frederick couldn't possibly have killed her because, you know, they eat dinner, you know, their biggest meal of the day. Everybody eats it between, you know, five, six, seven o'clock, somewhere there in the evening. And Frederick boarded the train at four o'clock. So he wasn't even home. How could he possibly have killed her? And she had a wonderful meal, you know, afterwards. Uh, but then a few people said, well, you know, the Smalls, we've seen them eating their dinner, their biggest meal in early afternoon. And so that sort of messed up the whole theory that the defense had going that Fred wasn't home when she ate that meal. That doesn't say that Florence didn't prepare a dinner for herself after Fred left. The, um, if you looked at the sink that was in the cellar, that had fallen through too and was not destroyed. And a lot of the crockery and pots and pans and things definitely indicated that she had just made a significantly big meal. It's just, when did she make it? Did she make it after Frederick left or did she make it at noontime? Yeah. So there was an inquest, which led to a grand jury investigation. And the grand jury, in turn, decided that Frederick was suspect enough to deserve his own murder trial, right? Right, that's correct. So one of the things that was important to the defense, right, was, was a door. 
this hatchway door that led into the basement. Can you explain its uh, significance? Right. Well, you know, when the fire was burning, there was somebody who actually thought that they saw Florence on the first floor um, lying in her, in her bed, and he tried to get in and the door was locked. They don't really know. There was a lot of different theories as to was it locked, was it not? And the biggest problem with that, they would have known for sure, except they let everybody, except for Frederick Small, into the cottage ruin area. And there were about three different people who picked up that lock and they either locked it, you know, you got a lock in your hand and you just, you're what, you, you just turn the lock and then maybe the next guy turns it and unlocks it. And then maybe the next guy who picks it up and then of course they'd toss it away and then the next guy would pick it up and, and he'd either lock it or unlock it. So by the time it got to the sheriff, nobody knew if that door was locked or not. So it, it kind of, it could have been a piece of evidence that was important, but it really wasn't because it had been handled so many times by so many different people. It's just incredible that they didn't keep only investigators uh, looking at the crime scene. They just let everybody in, which really contaminated the crime scene and, and made it so that that lock really, it, it was a non-issue at that point because they couldn't tell for sure if it was locked or not. Right. And the defense argued that she could well have been murdered by a hobo, a, a transient. Right, right. Because there were a lot of them around. As a matter of fact, when my parents were staying there in the 1950s, um, they saw a, a, a hobo, I guess you could call him, a homeless man. And uh, he was living in the woods there and, and he was disheveled and he was you know dirty and there were flies that were flying around him. And it, it was a problem even in the early 1900s that vagrants would come by and um, they'd either want food or, or something or money or whatever, and they could go into homes and say, you know, a cottage, most of them were vacant. So if a, a transient decided that maybe there was nobody home and then surprised Florence and, you know, maybe Florence tried to defend herself and maybe things got out of hand. That's what they were basically saying, that maybe it was a vagrant who just uh, wanted food or, or wanted to rob the place, thought the cottage was empty and surprised Florence and things got bad. Yeah. So motive. What did police believe Frederick's motive was in killing his wife, Florence? Well, of course, you know, Frederick did have a a history of insurance um, deals that had made him quite rich. And um, this was no different. Um, Frederick took out a $3,000 insurance policy on his $900 cottage and another $1,000 policy on the contents of the cottage. And then he took out a $20,000 joint life insurance policy on Florence and himself. And, you know, that, as the defense said, any man who was worth his salt would protect his family and his things with insurance policies. This is not something, you know, out of the ordinary. The only thing that was different about this is that the premiums for these policies, because they were so large, because you have to remember money was, that money was worth a lot more than it looks I mean, today. I mean, $3,000 isn't much, but back in the turn of the century, $3,000 was a lot. 
So the premiums for these policies would have caused small to run out of money within a couple of years. So it seems kind of silly that he would want those policies um, when he could only keep them for a short period of time, unless they would have a tendency to pay off sooner than later. Um, so that's kind of what was suspect about them. It, it seems that uh, he would have expected to get a payoff from them fairly soon because he wasn't going to be able to keep the policies that long. He was going to run out of money paying the premiums for them. We'll be back in just a moment. And we are back. So part of the prosecution's strategy was to lay out this story of abuse, this terrible mistreatment of, of Florence. And they brought in a lot of witnesses to share what they had seen or heard, in, including the postman slash milkman who had some things to say about the smalls. Right, right. Um, he apparently, um, Frederick Small and the mailman, uh, his name was Philip Davis, they hung around together here and there. Uh, they'd go dunk hunt, duck hunting together. And um, one day when they were in the boat, and of course Florence would be rowing the boat, she came from sturdy stock after all. And um, there came a point where Florence ran the boat aground. And Frederick raised one of the oars because he was angry. He had a quick temper. It wasn't so much that uh, in all the abuse situations, it wasn't like he was plotting that he was going to do this. It, it was a, a, a temper that he had that just immediately flared up and got out of hand. And that was why the abuse happened pretty much in every instance. He, he couldn't control his temper. And um, he was angry that the boat ran aground and he raised one of the oars over his head and Philip Davis looked at him because he thought, at least Frederick thought that Philip thought that he was going to hit Florence over the head with the oar. And he actually said, did you think I was going to hit her with this? And Philip really didn't say anything and he put the oar down and he kind of snickered and, you know, like, of course I'm not going to do that. Um, that was one thing that uh, Philip Davis witnessed. Another thing the mailman witnessed was um, they were putting a flagpole up on the property and Florence was helping Frederick. And um, I guess when the mailman came to deliver the mail or whatever, um, Small was angry at Florence because the uh, flagpole fell and uh, he began swearing at her and kicking at her because he was angry that the flagpole fell. Of course, we know about the bootjack incident, and uh, I, I know that a lot of the people around the lake who lived in the cottages there would say that Florence misdealt cards by accident. Fred would yell at her until she cried. So that was basically some of the instances that, um, that they brought up. Didn't she at one point fall out of a boat? Yes, yes, she did. Um, and you know, it's funny. I spoke to the person who lives next door now, and his grandparents uh, knew the Smalls. And he was a very interesting, and I, I actually spoke to him after I wrote the book. But he was talking about there were a few incidents, you know, on the lake where either they heard Small screaming at, at Florence 
or um, she would fall out of the boat and maybe it wouldn't be too quick getting her back in, just things like that. It wasn't uh, a great relationship. <laughs> right, right. He was letting her flounder in the water, right? And, and then another boat came up to offer assistance, and then he suddenly made a big deal about saving her. Right, right. Uh, uh, there were neighbors that came forward and told police that there were no lights on in the house the evening before the fire began. Right, right. right. And, and you would think if she was alive, um, there would be at least a fire or, or lights or something. It was September 28th. And, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with New Hampshire, but in the mountains, it gets cold um, very quickly. And uh, you would have thought that she might have lit a fire or there would have been a lighter or something on. Mm -hmm. So among the people present at the trial uh, were Florence's mother, Elizabeth, and her sister, Norma Curry. What, what did they have to say? They were very, very well respected by the people of Ossipee. They immediately especially took to Elizabeth Curry. Um, they thought that she was a very credible witness, that she was very dignified. She definitely was not a fan of Frederick Smalls, and she was very happy with the outcome of the trial. And they testified as well, right? They did, uh-huh, to the abuse that uh, they had witnessed. And Norma had some extra insight uh, because in October of 1915, I believe, she had come to visit them, and she was able to witness firsthand th the dynamics of their relationship. Right, and, and uh, Florence was ill. That's why she was up there. She had uh, become sick, and uh, she really needed some help. Apparently, Frederick was not doing all he could to um, help her to get better, and so Norma came up for a few days and... Um, yeah, notice that, you know, Frederick really wasn't all that caring. And not only that, that Frederick pretty much acted like if Florence was no longer there, that would be fine with him. You know, she died. It would be, you, you sense that, Norma sensed that he didn't really care whether she lived through this illness or not. Yeah. So what was Frederick like during the trial? Was he engaged with everything that was happening? Oh, yes. Frederick was definitely engaged. Any um, jurors that they were placing in the jury box, he would definitely have an opinion whether they should take that juror, whether they shouldn't. He played a very active role in the entire trial. Um, yes, he didn't just sit there not with an opinion. He, he, he had an opinion about everything. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about, Ed Connor who is Frederick's insurance buddy and, and part of his alibi, uh, he did not defend Frederick at all. And he actually went looking around the property when they had first arrived and had noticed something missing, which he promptly reported to police. Right. Uh, I don't think you could call Ed Connor a buddy of Frederick's. I think the relationship was more of a business relationship where it was a necessary means to an end. It was a way for Ed to make some money. And um, Frederick definitely had connections that were valuable to him. So he kind of put up with, he felt that Frederick was um, 
He used rough language, especially around women, which Ed didn't appreciate that. And of course, he was fairly verbally abusive to Florence, and Ed didn't appreciate that either. Um, but what you're talking about uh, was Ed, of course, was the one who found Florence's body, and he noticed that cord that was wrapped around Florence's throat uh, looked a lot like the cord that um, Fred had rigged up on his uh, motorboat. The motor, he wanted to be able to turn it, not just sitting right at the motor. He wanted to be like, say, he was in the front of the boat. He wanted to be able to turn the motor. So he rigged up this cord system because he was that kind of guy. He liked to invent new things. And um, he was using that cord as part of this system that he had rigged up to steer the boat. And um, he had recognized this cord. And um, the cord, he went to the boathouse, of course, to to check out to see if the cord was there. And it was missing. So he immediately thought, I can't believe that Frederick would use me as an alibi when he murdered his wife. I mean, he at that point, he was just irate at the whole incident and the fact that he was used as a pawn when he didn't even know that anything was happening. He's, so, um, but the thing is, the shed wasn't locked. And so the cord that was missing from the boat shed it, you know, they were talking about a, a vagrant who possibly could have broken into the cottage or come through a door that was unlocked. And he also could have gone to the boat shed and taken that cord out of the um, shed because that wasn't locked either. So um, it didn't necessarily mean that Frederick took that cord. It could have been anybody because it was unlocked and accessible to anybody. Right, right. So what points were most important to the defense to get across to jurors? I think the defense, if you want to look at the trial and what the defense had for good points, I think there were three really good points that the defense had. And the first one was the evidence about the thermit that was used. And the reason that they did find thermit in the cottage, um, they found there's a crustiness that Thermit has that they found on the wood in the cottage. And so they knew Thermit was used. And Thermit is a compound that um, is a welding compound. And what they use it for is to repair uh, subway rails and other like hulls of ships, metals that they want to repair in place because it's going to be very, very difficult to take them out and repair them and then bring them back. And thermit is used for that. It's a welding compound. It doesn't have to do with electricity or telephone wires or anything like that. Frederick Small was not a welder. And, you know, even though the prosecution tried desperately to find a place because thermit wasn't readily available to buy. And they tried to find some place that Small bought the thermit. And they couldn't. There was absolutely just no trace of Small buying thermit. And they definitely knew that the thermit was used in the fire. So, and that's what caused it to seem to explode and burn evenly. Um, with no evidence of the thermit purchase, 
how did Small use it in the fire? That's always bothered me. And the defense did bring that up. Um, also, the fact that there was no incendiary device found in the cellar that was connected together. You can't just go into a home and get a bunch of items that searchers who were not investigators um, found in the cellar of Small's cottage and construct an incendiary device and say that's what he used. There was no evidence that's what he used. It's just, it was a theory, but there was no evidence. Um, and they did bring that home. And of course, um, he had an airtight alibi in Boston uh, with the high school principal. And they did bring up, the defense brought up Fred Bean. And I've always thought it was interesting that they didn't hammer that, that point home a whole lot more than they did. Um, there was a local man named Fred Bean. He's the one who found the revolver, and he didn't find it right away. And, uh, you know, we found out about the revolver in, during the inquiry on October 2nd. And he was a town guide. He wasn't a law enforcement person. He had no recollection of the night of Florence's murder. And uh, he was intoxicated to the point of blacking out. And that's why he didn't remember anything from that night. Um, the sheriff wouldn't allow Frederick back on the property to search for evidence. Um, but pretty much everybody else was able to. Fred found the revolver. Frederick Bean found the revolver. He found some of Mrs. Small's jewelry. Fred Bean took it upon himself to guard the cottage ruins for several nights after the fire, and he was clearly shaken up by being there. He reported hearing footsteps and seeing flashing lights. It seemed like Fred Bean was always hanging around, considering that his job didn't involve law enforcement, and he had supposedly no connection to the family or incident. And, you know, the defense did bring up the fact that Fred Bean seemed suspicious, but they never really went beyond that. And I, I don't quite understand why, because it's so much a thing now where if you do have another person who could be suspect in the crime, it's one of the first things that the defense does is say, well, you know, this person had motive, opportunity, you know, and, and, and was in Ossipy at the time, which Frederick Small wasn't. I was surprised that the defense didn't. Um, they said, could be Fred Bean. And then they immediately said, but, you know, we're not accusing Fred Bean of it, but just the fact that he's one person who had, you know, the ability to have done it, uh, there could be plenty of other people too. And I thought that was really, really strange that the defense wouldn't just hone in on Fred Bean. Yeah, that's very true. So one thing is, is very sadly certain uh, Florence died a really, really horrific, brutal death. She was beaten on the head, shot, and strangled. Were the doctors who examined her body able to determine the order in which these things happened? Right. They weren't totally sure um, of the order. They did know that the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, was the strangulation, the cord around her neck was what finally did her in. What, what that shows me is Florence was incredibly strong and really fought for her life because, but I, this is totally my opinion, but in my mind, I think probably maybe she was doing dishes or something and she was hit over the head with the fireplace poker several times and then she didn't die. She just 
continued on. Either that or she was shot in the head because she was shot in the temple and the bullet went through and got lodged in the uh, her right jawbone. Um, maybe she was shot first, turned around, started fighting, and then got hit by the fireplace poker several times, still didn't die, and that's when the cord came into play. Um, or maybe it was the other way around where she was hit first, didn't go down, and then got shot, and then finally was strangled. Um, all it tells me, no matter what order it all came down happening as, um, it shows me that Florence was a really strong woman and really fought for her life. Right. She was actually taller than him, too, right? Um, and just physically bigger. Right. Well, that wouldn't be hard to do because after his injury, um, he was a very thin man and he wasn't terribly tall, but his um, disability where his leg was so much shorter, that that added to him being much shorter. And because of that, I'm sure that, you know, his regular, um, how most people's muscles would develop and everything, it, it probably caused his, him not to be as muscular because, of course, he couldn't really run. And, you know, his physical activity would have to be limited because of his disability. So was there any especially uh, damning piece of evidence that led to the jury issuing the verdict they issued? I think the physical and verbal abuse is definitely a problem uh, for Frederick. Uh, the prosecution definitely did a good job showing a pattern of abuse. I think that the things that he brought with him to Boston, you wouldn't normally bring those things on an overnight trip unless you thought that they might not be there when you returned home. He said he was going to open a safety, safety deposit box, and that is possible, but if that was what he was doing, it was a really ill-timed time for him to take those things to Boston, considering what happened to his home and everything, because it definitely did make him look like he had done something and he knew something was going to happen and he was trying to save those items. And of course, the insurance policies. The, I think those were the three major things that the prosecution brought up that definitely made you think that there definitely could have been some guilt there. Right. So he was eventually found guilty. Uh, I, I don't like saying that. I don't like telling the end. And the reason why is because um, so many people come up to me after they've read my book and they say to me, you know, I don't or do think justice was served. And this is the reason why. And I think it's because I tell the story from so many different perspectives that I'm trying to almost make them like the juror. And if they know what happens in the end of the book, then it, it kind of makes it so that they can't take that experience where they say, oh, well, this happened and that happened. Well, did, could that possibly have been was he innocent? Was he guilty? And, and they can make up their own minds with that because people have different ideas depending on how they read you know, the book and the evidence. So I, I don't like saying what happened at the end because I don't want to ruin that experience for people. Sure, sure. My apologies for the spoiler. We can definitely stop here uh, if, if you'd like and not talk about what happened to him afterwards. That, that can be a surprise. So I'd imagine people ask you pretty regularly 
what you think happened. Do you like to speculate, share your, your, your beliefs, or do you prefer not to? No, I will speculate. Um, a lot of people ask me if they think, um, if I think that Frederick Small murdered his wife. And I have to say there's a good chance that he did. Um, but I'm not convinced that he did beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's important. Um, I don't think that the prosecution proved that he murdered his wife. I think that they didn't like him because he was an outsider. And I know we didn't talk about Ossipi uh, and the makeup of Ossipi and the history of Ossipi, but they definitely were suspicious of outsiders. And it was an odd thing because their whole economy was based on, a lot of it was based on the cottages that were around the lake and people who uh, rented or bought those cottages would come into town to buy goods and services. So they definitely needed outsiders. Um, I think that they chose the investigators, especially Sheriff Chandler and that group, chose their murderer and built a case around him. And um, Frederick was definitely abusive. There's no question about that. I've heard that from multiple sources. He wasn't a nice, caring guy. Um, did it make him a murderer? I don't know. Possibly. Not all abusers kill their spouses. It's just an interesting case. And, and, you know, I think part of the reason why people um, have their own opinions is because I basically, in the book, tell all sides of the story and never really have a conclusion myself because I don't think I do have a conclusion. I think there's a good chance that he did kill his wife, but I think there's a lot of things in there that make me think, there's a possibility he didn't. So, um, and I think that's why people like to form their own opinion because I really don't in the book because I haven't decided myself. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Well, I, I felt terrible for Florence, of, of course, having to suffer what, what she suffered. Yes. Um, but it had to have been so frustrating, heartbreaking for Elizabeth and Norma to sit by especially after that first uh, bout of, of abuse while they were all still living in the same place. And then to watch Florence move away and, and not be able to regularly check on her, uh, they must have just been terrified. Right, right. And helpless, you know, because they really, they were married. It wasn't like they weren't married and then they could do something about it. They were married and they had absolutely no control at that point of what happened to Florence and where they moved or, or anything. I mean, and Florence didn't have any control at that point. She didn't like it at the lake. She was lonely there. But she had no ability to say no because at that time, the husband was the boss. You didn't have, if, as a wife, you didn't have the ability, you could say what you wanted, but what the husband said was what went. It, it had nothing to do with what you wanted as a wife. So what happened to the cottage property from the point where the cottage burned down to when your grandparents purchased it? So that's a really good question about the cottage because I think it's a very important piece of the story. Uh, on January 16, 1918, Small's attorneys Matthews and Stevens took possession of Small's real estate property. This was probably to collect for payment due for their services at the trial. Then on February 21, 1922, just four years later, C. 
Stevens and Matthews remanded the property to the town of Ossipee. Basically, this was to cover back taxes and to avoid future ones. The property remained in the custody of the town of Ossipee until 1954, when a real estate agent named Barbara Allen purchased it from the town. She basically bought it for a ridiculously low price, more or less paying the town for the back taxes that the property had built up. About a year later, Barbara Allen sold the property to Joe Foley, and that's how my family became connected with the cottage. Now, sometime between the lawyers acquiring the property and the real estate agent selling the property to Joe Foley, a modest one-story cottage was built on the site. I never found any definitive information as to exactly who rebuilt the home, but I think we can assume that the lawyers probably built it and then had trouble selling the cottage considering the whole murder incident was still fresh in people's minds. Barbara Allen wouldn't have had enough time to build it before selling it to Joe Foley unless things got built quicker back then than they do now. But whoever did build it opted to keep the fieldstone foundation and the chimney, which were made of stone and therefore not touched by the fire. They may have thought that it added a little charm to the structure, but I think that using the existing fieldstone foundation that was structurally sound enough to support a new building was a huge money saver, especially when you consider that the cottage was apparently being built solely for resale. But the really odd thing is they kept two fieldstone columns that stand on the lakeside of the cottage and aren't really being used in any practical way for the cottage at all, and they support nothing and stand awkwardly as fieldstone pillars. It surprises me that they didn't knock them down, especially considering that they're a constant reminder of the structure that used to be there, which was the site of the horrific murder and fire, which you would think that they would want that people to have been able to forget that. Was the murder an interesting little selling point for your grandfather when when they purchased the cottage, or didn't he care? From the moment the friend of his at work told him about the cottage that was for sale, he knew from that moment that there was a horrific murder that happened there. And uh, it didn't really bother him, apparently, because he went ahead you know, to buy the cottage. So it's not like it was something that suddenly was sprung on him or anything. He actually knew about it from the get-go. And I don't think that that was a selling feature at all because he made such an effort to hide it from the rest of the family and even hid it from his wife, who was my grandmother, and uh, didn't tell her about it because he didn't want her to feel uncomfortable. As far as he was concerned, he could afford a cottage on Lake Ossipee, New Hampshire, real affordable price, you know, a, a wonderful opportunity. And just because a murder happened there, that shouldn't stop him from buying it. And But he did think that it could stop other people from wanting to go there because they might feel a little creepy about it. And I, I think, I don't think it was a selling feature. I think it was something he wanted to hide, but he couldn't pass up this opportunity to get a cottage on Lake Ospey. Is the cottage still in your family? No, my uh, grandparents, I guess a lot of people would come up all the time. And my grandmother was kind of sick of entertaining all the time. It's a lot of work to entertain. And so they sold it to my uncle. And my uncle basically um, rented the cottage out on a weekly basis. And he made a good income of that. And I asked him actually at my grandmother's funeral, um, 
why he sold it. And he said that the septic system pretty much exploded and he and a friend were digging through piles of, you know what, and he just said, I'm done. And so he sold it to um, another family who has owned it since then and owns it now. So once it's sold from my uncle to this other family, they are now the current owners and have had it for years and years and years. Well, of course, um, people, the people that my uncle sold it to have died and it's kind, kind of been inherited in generations. So it's like the third generation that owns the cottage now, but um, it's the same family. Well, this has been so interesting. So you have a website people can visit and, and not only check out this book, but some of your other books too. Yes, that's correct. I have a website, seatalespublishing.com, S-E-A-T-A-L-E-S, publishing.com, or janicepetrie.com, either one, J-A-N-I-C-E-P-E-T-R-I-E.com. And it looks like you've written some really delightful children's books with an ocean theme. Yes, yes. Uh, actually, schools are using them up and down the East Coast. And um, yeah, they're rhythmic and rhyming and fun. And uh, they also teach a lot about the sea animals, the invertebrates that we meet right on the edge of the, at the beach, the ocean. Well, great having you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Again, I have been talking to Janice S.C. Petri. Her book is called Perfection to a Fault. A Small Murder in Ossipee, New Hampshire, 1916. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Tomorrow.